as there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos. It will be a home run. And so that'll make it a 4-0 ball game. Hello, everyone, and welcome on into the Unabated Podcast. It is a special episode this week, and not your usual deep left here, because instead of going into the baseball field, Spreadopedia himself, Jason Weingarten, here with me today, because we are going to be discussing Billy Walter's new book, Gambler Secrets from a Life at Risk. And to help us do just that, joining us here, I, I don't know if we're technically in deep left. This is probably just going to go out as the unabated podcast, so I can't say the second guest ever on deep left. But Sean Patrick Griffin, author of Gaming the Game, the story of the Tim Donaghy scandal, here joining us now as well. Sean, thank you so much for being with us here today to review what I'm not quite done with it, but quite frankly, has been a fantastic read so far. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you here. So guys, of course, we're talking about Gambler. Have it here. Uh, you guys have both completely read the book through at this point. I am working my way through it, but I've I've gotten about halfway done and I have thoroughly been enjoying it. Before we get into any of the stories and any of the plenty of things that we're going to cover here, um, initial thoughts. Did you enjoy it? And what were some of your favorite parts, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I did enjoy it. I read through it in, in about a, a day. Um, you know, I, I skipped skipped two or three chapters here or there that I, I didn't find completely necessary. But yeah, I learned I learned a couple things I didn't know. I'm, you know, I'm glad he wrote the book. But, you know, they I'm I'm not not giving it a, a full five stars. You know, it's it's there there were not a ton of of groundbreaking revelations in it. There was some cool stuff, but um, you know, it 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 deserves to be a New York Times bestseller. It's I saw it was number two today already, so it's probably gonna hit number one by by the end of this weekend or the next week or so. But yeah, I mean it it is not I have a stack of gambling books here. I'll talk about some of them. It is it is not the the best book ever ever written it's not bad by any means but it is it is not number one john how about you initial thoughts i agree with jason i would recommend it but part of the problem is if you're familiar with this world i think maybe that's what jason's alluding to not a lot of it was new or path-breaking and we'll probably get into things that we hope were in there that are not and, and why but for the people who are not familiar with either billy walters or professional gambling I'm sure for them, it's a remarkable read because they've never seen anything like this. A lot of people are not aware that there's, there are literally people who claim gambling on their taxes and who are betting that kind of money and are that successful or have research teams or computer alg algorithms. So all that stuff, I think for those people, it's going to be fascinating. I, 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 I actually tweeted about this weeks ago. I thought we were going to get what we got, unfortunately, because... He's only going to be able to write the things that maybe, I don't know about Jason, but I would be interested in after statutes of limitations are no longer in play or uh, he's retired, which he says in the book he's not, or at least he says it in interviews. Or I've always said, too, it would be great if you see some people do this who are in his line of work or other lines of work where they'll write a manuscript, but that can only be published after they've died. Because otherwise, we're going to get this very superficial take on a lot of things. And unfortunately, I think that's what we got. And, and my, as I'll explain later, there are ways for an author to do that creatively. And that wasn't even attempted here. And my sense was that he wrote the book mainly to go after certain parties, as opposed to actually telling his life story. Hmm. I mean, I, again, haven't gotten to that back half where I know he gets into a lot more of the Phil Mickelson stuff. I did read the chapter on Steve Wynn, and we're going to address a lot of that here because this is more so than a review us talking about a lot of the interesting stories in here yeah. because i mean i find it to be very compelling you talk about the people that are still very much learning the history of all this i'll openly admit i'm I'm a little younger than a lot of the guys that i work with here at unabated and so some of this is new information to me the stories are fascinating i mean it's the world of gambling and all the interesting the characters that come along with it I particularly enjoy just the fact that it really does keep you going. And he's not by any stretch a renowned author, but the way he's written the book, I do feel I feel compelled to keep going. It never really feels like it's dragging for me. Even the chapters in the beginning where he's talking about growing up and what a hard life that was and how hard he was hustling back then. 
it it keeps you it keeps you interested it keeps you engaged but where it really starts to take off of course is when he gets to vegas in chapter eight and that's where we're gonna pick things up here because this is the moment where we get an introduction to some really famous people benny binion of course anthony spilatro who everybody knows from joe pesci's character in casino if you don't know the actual story about the absolutely terrifying mob boss that he was he shows up in every vegas book one way or another and all of these stories everyone is always afraid of him jason what did you think about spilatro's appearance in the book well, yeah, that was sort of the the first thing I noticed when he gets to Vegas and, and to sort of what Sean was was talking about. Um, you, you can tell stories about dead people a lot better than you can people who are still alive or still working in the industry. So he immediately brings up Benny Binion, who's been dead for quite a while, and Anthony Splotro, who has been dead for, you know, I honestly don't even know, 30 plus years now. Um and they're good stories. It's it's interesting stuff, especially with Spilotro. I mean, you, you kind of get the sense that everybody's afraid of him. And it comes, like you said, he comes up in every book and in, in every book about Vegas, every uh, Stewie Unger's book, he comes up, he's in Casino, he's in uh, Oscar Goodman's book. Um, everyone's afraid of him, like terrified of this guy. Um, Billy Walter's no exception. So, you know, I thought that was interesting, but it's it's kind of one of those things that sets up sort of the theme that he's he's going to bring up and talk about people who are dead because he can as opposed to you know talking about things that are going on currently um but yeah i mean the the chapter eight's kind of kind of where the the book kind of gets started for me like he shows up in vegas everything um but yeah that's that's basically the start um you know brings up like i said he brings up spilocho right off right off the bat um literally page one of chapter eight i think but uh what did i i asked you or i mentioned i think it's chapter eight the one of the more interesting things is he he has this conversation with benny binion where uh binion tells him about this one particular guy that they're both friends with that they think is a snitch and then they don't elaborate on it anymore there's nothing not the rest of the chapter not the rest of the book like i was really surprised because he kind of drops like this pretty interesting nugget right off the bat and doesn't bring it up again that that kind of got me thinking about what sean you know what we were talking about on twitter like a week ago about the manuscript being much longer initially than what we we ended up getting yeah and we'll never know what was left out by the way one comment uh in, in addition to what jason said with regard to the spilatro stuff one of the things that i learned because for the people who don't know when i did game in the game back in 2008 I was unaware of this. This is not my major research area. Organized crime is. And when I interviewed pro gamblers, I didn't interview Billy Walters, but I interviewed people who worked with him, dealt with him, feared him, adored him, respected him, all that sort of stuff. But these are just regular people who happen to gamble for a living. At that point in the 80s, which is what we're talking about right now, they were petrified of organized crime guys. On the one hand, they had to deal with them because they were immersed all throughout sports gambling, whether in Vegas or anywhere in the big cities. But they were these were just regular people. They were people with families. And so they had to always walk this fine line. And the thing is, people like Billy Walters, who were taking big money out of the market, they had to be careful because, yes, they were betting with these people because they had to, because those were the outs back then. But you always had to be careful because if you took too much money out of a book, now Billy Walters does not say this in his book, the pro gamblers I interviewed years ago all said that they were all mindful of who they were dealing with and how much they were hemorrhaging certain sports books because they knew that there was going to be hell to pay and not in a way that was just a bad conversation or getting banned from a sports book. It James, really James is. Toback. It, Sorry. What was that? I say James James Toback mentions that in, in one of one of his books. He's a Hollywood writer who's also a big gambler. He he mentions that uh, he was beating some some big New York bookie out of a lot of money, you know, playing playing baseball, and he was bragging about it to to a friend who worked for the FBI or something. And his friend showed him some wiretaps where you know the the bookies were saying, if he keeps beating us, we're gonna kill him, you know, because they were yeah. tired of losing, you know. But that was sort of, uh, and he's just like, no, it's cool. You know, they're my friends. I'm beating them for a lot of money. And 
you know, here he is, you know, hearing a wiretap of, of them saying, no, nah, we're, we're going to kill this guy if he keeps winning. So to your point, you know, he, that, that, that is, uh, you know, what, what sort of the, what was going on back then. Yeah. We, we really do have to consider ourselves lucky that the worst thing we have to deal with now is DraftKings or FanDuel limiting us. <laughs> That's true. Now, moving on into chapter 11 here, which is where Billy gets into the FBI investigation into the computer group. And this is where another very famous Las Vegas shows up, Oscar Goodman, who he hired to defend him. And then he kind of admits that that was a mistake. And I haven't gotten to this point in the book yet where he reveals why that was a mistake, but... Jason, I know that you already have, and also that the recollection here differs from the story that Oscar Goodman tells in his book, right? Yeah, I've, I've read uh, Oscar Goodman's, uh, I don't know if it's it's actually his biography or unauthorized biography. It's by John L. Smith. If you're not familiar, sorry, I'm trying to get it in the camera here. I'm, I'm always bad. This is the part I'm, I'm worst at, is getting the, <laughs> the book in the frame. But uh, this is... This is Oscar Goodman's. Uh, sorry, it's really bad. Um, this is his auto. This is his biography written by John L. Smith, uh, famous Las Vegas newspaper uh, newspaper man for a very long time. And uh, Billy Walters appears in this book because Goodman writes about the computer group case from his perspective and his recollection. And I found it interesting because um, I'd read this book. I've read this book you know multiple times before uh, before Billy Billy Walters' book came out. But uh, Goodman's recollection is slightly different, whereas like Billy Walters is saying immediately, oh, man, I made a mistake hiring Oscar Goodman because Oscar Goodman represents all these mafia guys. You know, I kind of have a hard time believing like he didn't know that before he hired him, (laughs) number one. But number two, uh, Goodman in his book, he calls Billy Walters the most generous client he ever had. Um, He talks about, you know, that wasn't the perfect relationship when he was rep- representing him. Um, he ends up firing Billy Walters as a client, essentially. But uh, he says they smoothed their relationship over, you know, and, and even even uh, Billy Walters held, you know, a, a political event at his his uh, country club for for uh, for Oscar Goodman when he was when he was mayor running for reelection. So he said they had smoothed over their relationship, you know, beyond this this computer group stuff. Um but then I read, I read the book, and Billy Walters comes out and says, "Well, I made my first mistake hiring, uh, hiring Oscar Goodman, and this and that." And it doesn't seem like he had a particularly, uh, you know, a good recollection of their time together, which, which I just found odd because, you know, later on when when they get back into the second wave of indictments for the computer group stuff, it's pretty clear that without Oscar Goodman's motion to recuse the judge they probably would have ended up in prison you know well before the the insider trading stuff so i just found it interesting if if you're interested in hearing the computer group stuff from oscar goodman's perspective which again just because oscar goodman says it doesn't mean it's 100 percent true either but you know there's sort of a a difference of of recollection between some of these some of these books that i've uh i've read yeah, what did you think there, well, Sean? Well, I, by the way, Jason's got me there. I don't have that book, so that I'll add that to the list on my wanted liter- literature. But um, one of the things that I caught in that same narrative was, you know, Jason just said, which I agree, which is, you know, but for Oscar Goodman, maybe that doesn't end the way it does. Billy Walters, that's the first time in the book he does something a few times where he makes a reference to legal advice he got. And in that case, it wasn't from Goodwin. It was from uh, another attorney. I believe the guy's name was Woofter or something like that. Um, and that was what was most compelling. Well, what was the advice? What was this landmark written uh, document that so changed the outcome of that case? Uh, granted, I mean, look, I, it's, it's, a, it's a, supposed to be a, a lighthearted book, but you can give us a sense uh, and and yet we're just left to believe, oh, well, there was this incredible document that was so overwhelming, it it won the day for us. And he does that in two or three other occasions in the book. That's another example where I don't know how he and Armin Katayan made that decision, because at least for me, I'm going, wow, that's pretty important. This was one of the biggest cases ever in this business. And if you're arguing that that 
memo that your lawyer wrote was the thing that carried the day. Well, what was it? What did he say? What was so compelling? And why aren't other people doing that? Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Jason. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, like like Sean said, there's a couple points in the book where he drops some some pretty interesting stuff and then never really follows up on it. And I wonder if that stuff was was taken out later, or, you know, if there were originally expansions on it that were were edited out. It's not not like there's necessarily going to be a revised and expanded edition of this in the near future <laughs> that that's gonna you know fill fill a lot of the stuff in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do get the sense that he was, he, he, there's a lot of stuff that is obviously written for the public here, but I get, I get a sense that a lot of the stuff he's putting down sort of for his own recollection or for, for certain people who can fill in the blanks. And a lot of times, you know, um, if you've read, you know, I have, like I said, I have a stack of books here, different, different gambling books. Um, if you've read all these books, you can kind of fill in some of the blanks yourself. Um, if this is the first time you've ever read a gambling book, a book about Vegas, there's probably 17, 20 different things that just, <laughs> just fly over your head, you know, and you don't even think about. But um, a lot of this stuff, you got to essentially read between the lines and kind of understand that, that there's certain things that he might not be saying or might not be elaborating on. And there's obviously a good reason for that, uh, whatever it might be. Yeah, I'm curious to see what got left on the cutting room floor. Like you said, Sean, about the manuscript being much longer originally. I feel like there. I, I wonder if it's that things were redacted, where Billy went back and said, you know what, I should keep that out of the book. Or if there were things that maybe that got into the weeds on and then the, during the editing yeah. process, they said, OK, well, we're going to pull this there out. Are, well. There are times where it's not necessarily your story to tell. You know, mm -hmm. it's someone else, you're, you're implicating somebody else in something. And it's not necessarily your story to to tell their part in something. So I can see why why stuff gets gets left out. And it's, you know, he's focusing on himself as opposed to necessarily yeah. implicating other people who might not have done anything. Yeah. Well, and the things that bother me are things that most people could care less about. So I can understand why those were it out. But as you know, a geeky academic, I'm going, hey, wait, <laughs> you're, you could answer a lot of questions here. And I'm not saying it would be scintillator reading. So. No, yeah, I mean it's interesting. It might be interesting to you or me, but uh, yeah, like you said, yeah, it's, it's yeah I'm being fair to the authors for the most part. <laughs> yeah. Well, one person who he certainly didn't have a hard time talking about was Steve Wynn, who we meet in yeah. chapter twelve. And Jason, I mean, you can't tell the story of Vegas without the story of Steve Wynn. But I, I, I again, I haven't gotten to the end where we get into Wynn bragging about making sure that Billy didn't get a pardon, but. I am still very much at the beginning where he took all of uh, he took all that money from the roulette games and when got incredibly pissed off about it and kind of held the grudge for life. And so to your to your point that you can't tell the story of Vegas without win. Uh, John L. Smith also wrote this book <laughs> called Running Scared. Um, I, I don't know if it's in the frame or not, but this is actually one of my favorite books about Vegas. Um, it's very well researched and, and it's, it's does not pull any punches about the history of Steve Wynn, which is very complex and an incredible, incredibly interesting story. But in, in sort of in the context of the, uh, the Billy Walters book, he mentions that Steve Wynn first steps into the spotlight in 67 gets uh 5% of the frontier hotel doing he does so uh his his family owns a bingo bingo parlor in Maryland so he's coming from owning this this bingo establishment out east but uh 4 years after that he ends up with a controlling interest in the golden nugget as Billy Walters writes thanks to his high profile position in the liquor distribution business and an improbable mormon bank connection which <laughs> curiously is the only mention in the book of E Perry Thomas uh for most people completely unfamiliar with E. Perry Thomas, he's the banker at Valley National Bank in uh, Nevada who who handled all the Teamster loans. You know, once the, the loans were made, they had to go to a bank and, you know, be actually handled by a banker. This was E. Perry Thomas's job. If you're not familiar with the name, the Thomas and Mack Center at uh, UNLV is named after him and his partner, Sherwin Mack. Um, they were they were the two, you know, they, they were pretty big movers and shakers in Vegas, um, in their own right, and in many regards, uh, E. Perry Thomas was considered, you know, the the power behind Steve Wynn. 
But uh, I just found it curious. This was literally the only mention of E. Perry Thomas in the entire book, and it was just as an improbable Mormon bank connection and nothing more. Um, he's he's an incredibly interesting figure. Um, I also got a book. You could read E. Perry Thomas's book. It's called Quiet Kingmaker. Um, he's he's another guy who deserves you know his own podcast essentially. But got one literally one line in the book, and that's it. Um, I was kind of surprised about that. You, you, you're not familiar with him at all, Sean. You pay Thomas. Most most people aren't. No, no. Yeah, I, I'm I'm learning a lot on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So he, I mean, like I said, he was the banker behind everybody in in Vegas when you know the Teamster Central Pension Fund was making all their sure. loans, real estate. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's just great quotes in this book. He talks about the FBI coming and raiding the bank and asking him where all the papers are. He says he doesn't have any. He keeps it all in his head. Because if he writes it down, then they're going to come and come and take it, you know, like, right. so, I mean, he, he did things uh, unconventionally, but but really was the literal power behind the throne in, in Las Vegas for a very long time. And, you know, you can't really tell the story of Steve Wynn without understanding what E. Perry Thomas was doing and Continental Connector and trying to buy the gold nugget and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, Billy Walters writes in the book, he goes, even the casino mogul, mogul, he's talking about Steve Wynn here, he says, even his most severe critics, and there is no shortage of them, have a grudging respect for his ability <laughs> to stay in business despite numerous probes by local and federal law enforcement. Throughout the years, Wynn has been accused of everything from sexual assault and indecent exposure to money laundering and condoning narcotics trafficking in his hotels, um, which is just, that was a very polite way of of being very rude to somebody that powerful, you know, having a grudging respect for his ability to stay in business despite numerous pros by local and federal law enforcement is just a, a very polite insult. Um, I, I, I was impressed by that, that paragraph. I thought it was, you know, pretty, pretty mean, but there's, there's truth to it. I mean, he's not, he's not saying anything that hasn't been alleged before. Um, and you can tell, he clearly does not like Steve Wynn. It, like he sets it up from the start that this guy is not a good person, um, you know. And then he gets, goes into it in more detail. But you know, it it mainly comes like like we said the roulette thing. He won a bunch of money playing roulette in uh, what he called in Atlantic City. Um, and he tells the same story in Richard Munchkin's book, Gambling Wizards. Another another great book. And another reason to read Gambling Wizards, by the way, not only does it start with an interview with Billy Walters, it has an entire chapter with another member of the com- computer group, Stanley Thompson. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that Richard Munchkin's book. It's pretty pretty solid. But uh, he doesn't identify Gold Nugget or Win by name initially in Gambling Wizards, but it's pretty obvious what he's talking about because he says it's the only casino that is licensed in New Jersey and Nevada, which is Gold Nugget, Steve Wynn. Um, but yeah, he, he expands on that a lot. And kind of this is where he learns that the casino isn't your friend when you win a lot of money. I mean, he won a bunch of money fair and square. But uh, yeah, this was the start of a feud that sounds like it, it ended up hurting him in the long run. Well, when we started the podcast, you know, we were joking about the fact uh, of his motivations for writing the book. This is my point. I don't think he wrote the book to go after Steve Wynn, but he was perfectly fine using this opportunity to go after him. I think other people motivated him to write the book, and this was part of that pattern. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing is like the Phil Mickelson stuff (laughs) was purposely – to you know, you have to do promo for your book. You gotta you gotta send snippets out to different sites and get people reading it to do the pre-sales. And Phil Mickelson obviously, you know, got a whole bunch of pre-sales on that stuff. It's it's very good content, good stuff to talk yeah. about. But it it was honestly some of the most least interesting stuff in the book. And as Tommy knows, you know, we've also heard the story ourselves from the the bookie side of 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 uh, what's it called of. Uh, uh, Phil Mickelson owing owing a bunch of money. We we heard the story before the book came out. So there's only mm-hmm. so many times you can hear the same kind of stuff, you know, over and over. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Mickelson owing four million dollars, whatever, is just not very exciting to me. It's it's just normal sort of high high level gambling stuff, you know, celebrity yeah. mm-hmm. gambling stuff. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I I think that, and we'll get to the Mickelson chapter in a bit, but. 
if it's true that he did bet $400,000 on the U.S. Open or on the Ryder Cup the year that he was really a big reason the U.S. lost, that's just very interesting about the theme that Billy has running through the entire book of people on the golf course because golf is such a huge part of the book. Half of it is him telling stories that took place on a golf course. And one of the things that he always likes to talk about is he always knew when somebody was betting too much when somebody had too much on the line that got them past their point of being comfortable. And he always wanted to find that point because he felt it gave him an edge over anybody else. And I feel like that relates back to what did actually happen in that golf match with Phil. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and the thing with Phil, I mean, I, I, I said, this was the least interesting part of the book for me, but he had to know what he was getting into, Yeah, you know, like, and, and it's kind of goes into more just sort of the technicalities of, dealing with with whales and high level gambling like i know it billy walters knows it you can't control your whales you can only control them up to a certain point they're still gonna do their own gambling and deal you know like like that's why billy walters wanted phil mickelson is because he had great cover because you know mickelson was an incredible degen at that point but um i just didn't find any of it particularly interesting is is what it really came down i know it sold books but it, it just wasn't particularly interesting to me I think that's fair. Uh, Sean, what did you think? Because I'm looking forward to getting to that part of the book. Uh, unfortunately, I agree with Jason. And the other thing, too, was a lot of the Mickelson stuff, now granted, not Billy Walter's side of the event, but that was covered extensively, not just in sports news, but financial press. It was all throughout the news for more than a year. So, yeah, we got to hear his side. But now, look, given my line of work, that was not why I bought the book. So I, it was not that big a deal to me. I think that's fair, but I think that, again, it comes back to the more audience writ large and that you guys are in that little bit of a niche, but I think there are a lot of people who probably find that stuff really compelling. But I, I agree. So now, guys, moving on to Chapter 14 here. This is where the indictments come back up, the second wave of indictments for the computer group. And we already talked a little bit about how it was Oscar Goodman's motion while Billy really gives more of the credit elsewhere. But Jason... Oscar Goodman's motion was huge in getting the judge dismissed. Yeah, this was this was just one of the things I found interesting, kind of triangulating between Billy Walter's book and Oscar Goodman's book, is uh, the the judge at the time, Lloyd George, Judge George, um, who was a devout Mormon and very, you know, the, the courthouse in, in Vegas is named after him. You know, he was pretty pretty upstanding guy in the community, um, beyond reproach essentially as a judge. And Oscar Goodman files what's what's essentially a, a hail mary type of motion to recuse George from uh, from the computer group case because George had allowed Billy Walters to meet with FBI agents with without uh, Goodman present, which is a huge you know violation of attorney client you know privilege whatever. Um, actually, I don't think it's attorney client privilege. It's no. uh, just uh, counsel rep, rep, being represented by counsel or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you may want to edit that. That sounds stupid. Anyways, um, so yeah, Goodman, Goodman, uh, Goodman files this motion that you know, typically has almost a zero percent success rate, and George actually ends up recusing himself and is replaced by a different federal 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 judge, someone from Pennsylvania named uh, Newhauser, I think. But uh, you know, in Billy Wall, or excuse me, in, in Oscar Goodman's book, he essentially says that the computer group and Billy Walters would have likely have gone to prison if not for his motion to recuse uh, judge, judge George. And, you know, the fact that the motion never, never really works. And it did was uh, a pretty lucky stroke here for, for Walters and the computer group. But um, I mean, he, he discusses this briefly, but, but he does not go into detail um, about Oscar Goodman and the motion and how, even this was after he'd been fired essentially as a client of, of Goodman's too, that Goodman files this motion that keeps him out of prison. So, you know, like I just, I find, I found this particularly interesting just from the, the legal sort of standpoint, it, it, you know, like there's, there's a lot of stuff in this book that is interesting from the gambling side. Um, you know, you could learn a lot. I, I thought one of the big takeaways is that Billy Walters talks about how he was not a particularly successful gambler until he stopped drinking, you know, like, it's that's sort of something that a lot of people figure out is you need to kind of be incredibly focused and cut out a lot of your vices to be a successful successful gambler but 
in this case, in this chapter, a lot of the stuff he's talking about is just sort of the technical and legal aspect of, of gambling. And um, I, I, like I mentioned, I think if you're interested in, in a lot of the computer group stuff, Oscar Goodman's book kind of provides a little more detail, not, not like great detail. There's really only like one chapter in it or two chapters max, but um, you get a different perspective of what's going on with this legal case. John, what did you think? Because to me, the biggest red flag was when Billy says, oh, yeah, I'm going to go talk to the FBI and just sort this whole thing out. That instantly to me had me going, oh, well, that's not going to end well. Well, it's funny with regard to uh, Billy talking to the FBI. One of the things I discovered years ago, I mean, this is a long time ago, back 2008, 2009, when I was interviewing all the professional gamblers who either dealt with him, worked with him, partnered with him on occasion, they all had a great deal of respect for him and a great deal of fear for him uh, and fear of him because he's very aggressive. And that's why when I read that passage in the book, it didn't shock me because that's just how he's wired. And so even people who liked him and dealt with him never quite understood how to navigate dealing with him. And there's an example. And I thought it was interesting in the the Oscar Goodman book, he actually alludes to the, there being multiple meetings with the FBI taking place in different cities um possibly even different agents not just the one in the book but uh that that's sort of one of the things why it's important to be able sometimes to triangulate these stories in different books you know that have been written um you know at different periods of time by different people all part of the same community because a lot of times you get slightly different stories but i think that was sort of one of the discrepancies that stood out to me from having read other books is you know um goodman alleges essentially that there were multiple meetings with the fbi and then billy walter's book he's kind of talking about one particular meeting but um that was essentially why uh goodman fired him as a client is because he couldn't he couldn't represent the other people he continued to represent and have somebody meeting with the FBI. And that's where Richard Wright ends up coming to him and giving him excellent representation. But mm-hmm. Richard Wright is also, you know, someone who's known as representing people who meet with the FBI, whereas uh, Oscar Goodman is vehemently opposed to um, mm-hmm. anything to do with meeting with prosecutors. Well, you at know, all. that's part of the problem with books like this too, which is that, you know, in fact, Billy Walters writes in the book, I forget the, the the context, but he criticizes somebody for not, he was criticized for not being able to, oh, that's what it was. They were doing a mock trial, and apparently the mock jurors did not like the fact that he couldn't re- recall something from eight or nine years ago, whatever yeah, the circumstances were. Yeah, that comes up were. later. That, that's the yeah, insider but, trading But that's path. related to this. I agree with him in that regard, but that also then applies to people who are telling stories of their lives going back 20, 30, 40 years, where it doesn't necessarily mean they're lying, but the readers are relying on them to give an accurate recounting of something. And so to your point, Jason, for all we know, Oscar Goodman's version of that events, which either A, may have meant more to him than it did to Billy Walters years later, or B, was more contemporary, that might be a more reflective account of what happened. Goodman also says, I'll tell you that in the book, he also says that it was one of the only trials where a client ever questioned his his work ethic and thought that he wasn't getting the best representation potentially. And he also says that it ended up costing him, you know, not only Billy Walters as a client, he said it was his most generous client ever, but it ended up losing him the Binion's account too. So um, he, he does mention that there was professional fallout from, from this trial on his end, um, which again, I found interesting, but um, that's one of only like two times I can think of where uh, that someone essentially questions Goodman's representation. Otherwise, mm-hmm. he tends to to be the bulldog that everyone kind of makes him out to be. Mm-hmm. And so then getting kind of out of the trial stuff, which we do, of course, come back to at the end. But chapter 18, Jason, I feel like you would find really interesting simply because of the fact that it is dealing so much with more of the modern day issues of gambling, especially offshore accounts. Yeah, he gets into talking about international gambling and international banking and attempting to open and open opening up bank accounts in Europe post 9-11 and how how hard it was essentially to go to places like Switzerland and the Netherlands and deal with bankers and 
you know, not, you know, that the, everyone was worried about the Patriot Act and international terrorism. And here he is showing up trying to deposit cash in European bank accounts to bet legally. And he ends up, he talks about setting up shop in Switzerland, the UK, Bahamas, Panama, opens up an office in Mexico, gets extorted by the police, kidnaps some of his people. It's actually pretty like common stuff, to be honest. Like it's not. Like, it sounds crazy, but, like, exactly what did you expect? You were opening up a betting office in Tijuana, and you didn't pay off the, the local cops. Like, that's exactly what, what's going to happen. That's you know, it's 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 kind of like, you, I don't like to say funny stuff, but, like, you know, the, the way he tells the story isn't, like, he's not telling it like, like it was, in retrospect, it was pro- it's, it's probably way more serious at, at the time than it is now, the, the way he's telling it. Well, not only that, by the way, I couldn't agree with you more with regard to um, the Mexico stuff. Uh, that literally takes maybe a page in the book for good reason, because it was silly, you know. <laughs> but yeah, what did you expect that, was going to happen? Yeah. And, but, and credit to whoever took the charge and went down there on his behalf. I mean, that was just a, almost a suicide mission. But <laughs> yeah. with regard to the international stuff, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong. And I read this twice for this reason. Don't you get the sense when he says that he creates all these offshore bank accounts? One of the passages I know for a fact, he says that uh, part of the challenge was making sure that when phones went to the United States, that area codes didn't show up. But my whole thing was when he started getting into offshore, I thought he was finally going to explain betting all that weight, as they say on the street, offshore. But he never actually comes out and says that. You're left to believe, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I read it, you're left to believe he's betting in the United States. As opposed as opposed to globally? Yes, because my one, one, yes, one of my big grievances with the book is that you can't bet the amount of money that Billy Walters was for decades in Las Vegas. This is not happening. It was going on offshore. And so the question is where, how, and more importantly, how do you get that money back into the United States? Well, he does mention on a couple of occasions, you know, couriers bringing him money, you know, cash and somebody getting stopped at the airport with his money. And he says to him, well, it's still my money, whether, you know, if you get stopped with it, it's, it's your problem. It's my money. Um, So, I mean, he, he doesn't go into detail, but he does, he does mention, you know that there is a, a there are ways and and people that that are you know specifically tasked with bringing his money in and out of Las Vegas from wherever it it originated but no you're absolutely correct he does not go into very much detail i mean he mentions he mentions hiring uh, uh one of the the prominent international law firms to help mm-hmm. him structure and to yes. to give him legal opinions but then he doesn't elaborate on you know any of the stuff but obviously it's also like like if if you're thinking about it from the gambling perspective like most of the people reading this book are people who are interested in gambling you know for the most yeah. part that's the audience it's like you said sure. people might pick this up and find it interesting but gamblers are the ones buying this book and who are pre-ordering it and there's a lot of stuff you just don't want to give away to your potential competitors you want to you want to educate stuff there's two yes. chapters in the book about you know home field advantage and how he thinks about betting but you know, there's very little about here. Here's how to structure an international betting operation, <laughs> right. you know, from my experience. And and I I get it. it I, I don't want to give away. You know, I wouldn't want to give away that stuff either if I was in this position. Well, of course. Well, that's why I said the only way we were going to get a real tell-all is if he was retired or deceased. Yeah. Uh, you know, that and, – and the thing is but, – but here – but, you know, it's funny, Jason. He does make mention, obviously, he spends a good bit, bit of time talking about Sierra Sports Consulting. Well, okay. And he talks about the uh, offshore uh, holding accounts, or actually, I actually believe he calls them shell accounts. Well, again, I, I get what you're alluding to, but what exactly are they doing, and why isn't everyone doing this? I, I I think a lot of it comes to to you know the realization that for most people, you're not operating in the arena where you have the financial resources that he has, mm-hmm. you know, he mentions having Bloomberg terminals and high, high you know, the, the, the more you read the book, it's, it's, it's a parade of high priced lawyers and, 
you know, mm, investment yeah. firms and, and high level contacts that just the, the average person doesn't have. Um, I think a lot of it just comes down to, you know, for, for the average better, even even the relatively big time better, you know, you, you never even reach the, the size that, that you need, you know, an international law firm to help you structure your stuff. And, and you know, for, for Billy Walters, he absolutely needs that stuff. And you mentioned um, he's he one of the things I, I think comes across in the book it, is not necessarily that he's the richest guy, you know, or the, the most power, the strongest guy, whatever, but what comes off is his power, essentially, yeah. his his power mm-hmm. to move the market. The, it, he, when he speaks, people tend to, to listen and respect him. Um, he, he has sort of that that power behind him that a lot of people just just do not possess. You know, like he can walk in somewhere and get somebody fired sort of power is, is how it comes off in the book. Oh, for sure. And look, that's true. I mean, when I wrote Game in the Game back in 2011, that was one of the main themes. These people I interviewed thought they were hot stuff, but they never compared themselves to Billy Walters. Um, I yeah, mean, he can. really did. Yeah, I mean, there, there and, was just no one who had his also resources. one of the reasons... One of the reasons why I'm 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 hesitant to say, well, I don't like this or I thought this was dumb or stupid in the book, because who am I to say, you know, well, Billy Walters should have done this this way as opposed to how he did it. You know, I have no leg to stand on when it comes to criticizing the success of, of somebody like Billy Walters. It's, you know, I, I can nitpick things, but, you know, they, they, I have no, no nothing to speak on when it comes to saying, oh, well, he did this right or wrong. Yeah. Well, the, the, that's the one thing. It's it's not really in a specific chapter, but to me, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book, now granted, I did a lot of this in Game in the Game, but he walks the reader through the sociology of big time betting, whether it's manipulating betting lines, although I wish he would have done more explaining that. He simply mentions it, but he doesn't explain the architecture to that. He talks about head fakes, the idea that you would purposely put people on the wrong side of the betting proposition so that you get the right side. Or he also talks about this, and I was glad to see this, because again, I talked about this in Game of the Game with res- with respect to Billy Walters. People I interviewed said, oh my gosh, he screwed us so many times. He, he made so much fun of us. We thought we were getting the right side, copying his bets, and he was actually putting us on the wrong side all the time, making fun of us. People laughed at this. They cost him big money, but they thought it was hilarious how good he was at purposely screwing them. And he writes in the book That's- how he would do he would do that to adversaries and to people in his own company he thought who were uh, hurting his business, either being disloyal or otherwise you know, taking money or whatever. And he would purposely put them in harm's way with when it came to finances. That was sort of the, that's how I've, uh, one of the examples of his power sort of thing, yeah. just the way he, he can move the market, the, the power he had over people. But yeah, he, he does mention that in the book that, um, you know, if he thinks people are getting, you know, or playing, playing the play and then playing it again, you know, he'll give them the wrong side and yeah. people get greedy. That's, that's a common thing, you know, in the gambling mm-hmm. world is you give somebody a play and they play it in two accounts and tell you they played it in one. So, you know, it's no mm-hmm. surprise that, that he had countermeasures in place for that. That's, you know, it's, that's a story as old as time. Mm-hmm. I, I still think that one thing that surprised me because he, he talked multiple times about, and I, I think this might be another thing that got left on the cutting room floor. Like you said, with, head fakes and getting into the nitty gritty of manipulating lines and moving markets. That's, it feels like something to me where he could have gone on about that. Maybe the editors were like, this is getting off into the weeds. We're going to pull that back and cut that part out just for the sake of broader mm-hmm. appeal. But I, I feel like there has to be a lot more to the Steve Wynn story than Wynn turned on him because of the roulette wheel. Like, he talks for the first half of the book about how he could go in, ca- in casual sentences of, oh, yeah, blew a million dollars at blackjack that night. A $2 million roulette win? And Steve Wynn's getting bent out of shape about it like that? I think it was like four or something. But no, my honestly, my my advice is to read the, the book on Steve Wynn running scared. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so much more than I can expand and elaborate on. But if you read the book, you kind of get a, a better sense of Steve Wynn, especially in the 1980s. And, you know, he was, he was the shit in Vegas at the time. Yeah. He was, you know, the, the, he was our age, my age, Tommy, you know, I know you're a little younger than me, but he was the president of the gold nugget. 
he was building the 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 mirage which you know needed a hundred something million dollars in junk bond financing just to get off the ground i mean the things he was doing at that time were just out of this world um but he was he was an insane guy at the same time like he now you know even billy walter says he's not a guy you particularly want to be on the bad side of and he he has a lot of enemies and i guess billy walters ended up becoming one of them over <laughs> over the the roulette wheel essentially and so that does bring us into a bit of the end of the book here because steve Wynn was a huge factor in keeping him from getting a pardon and that really came back that really came back to be what it was in the end when bragging about killing his chances for the pardon and everything that went on there what did you think about the wrap up where we get into the insider trading uh, prison and the aftermath of Steve Wynn? I think there's a lot of pretty, pretty interesting and important stuff in, in the last couple chapters of the book that don't necessarily have to do directly with gambling. You know, he has a whole chapter or a couple chapters on Carl Icahn and, you know, getting involved in the market and how he views, you know, betting and, and, taking positions in stocks and a lot of that stuff's interesting and it leads into the whole insider trading uh whole portion of the book which again is is a pretty you know important sort of part of his life and and he learns a lot and we learn a lot through it but uh mainly you know he ends up losing the case going to prison um the the sentencing he gets was like five years or something when um, he probably could have got probation or whatever that the government was clearly vindictive at this point and, you know, wanted to, to send him a message. And he ends up in, in Pensacola at a minimum security prison over the uh, private prison, the private minimum security prison in Taft, Taft, California, which uh, Jordan Belcourt writes about in, in his book, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, or it might have been the, the sequel to Wolf of Wall Street, where he mentions being in prison in Taft. But either way, um Billy Walters kind of figures out pretty quickly that he probably made a mistake picking Pensacola as the uh, place to send, spend his sentence. Um, but beyond that, it's it. I want to say that like it's pretty. You know, the revelations about the 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 prison system are are significant. But the reality is, if you've read any book about white collar criminals that go to prison, they all pretty much say the same thing. Like. You know, I was not prepared for the federal incarceration system. It's just a sort of a matter of fact, like all these people go to prison and it, it is as scary as it, it sounds. And yeah, I think I think that regard, you know, like like I, I found I found sort of a lot of his stuff with with prison. I guess interesting kind of because it's like a scared straight for white collar crime, like look, you you could be one of the most powerful people in the world. You could be a guy like Billy Walters and you're still not going to have a remotely enjoyable time, even in minimum security federal prison. You know, he clearly paints the picture that it is awful and there's nothing to, you know, the, there's, it's not enjoyable in any regard except when you get out. Yeah. Um, but that's standard for all these sort of books where white collar criminals end up in federal prison. Yeah, Sean, what did you think about the prison revelations there? Well, I, I agree with uh, Jason. By the way, that I, if I if my memory is correct, I believe that's also where Tim Donaghy served his time. Pensacola? I'm I think pretty so. sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I wrote Game of the Game, my focus wasn't on on Donaghy, but I'm pretty sure that's where he wound up going. He um, he talks about in the in in Billy Billy Walters book, he talks about how the 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 prisoners were able to to go out to like Walmart and Burger King. Well, they weren't allowed to, but there were no like fences yeah. around the prison. So they'd sneak out to like make like Walmart runs and stuff, which, which was really funny to me. Cause it reminded me, uh, there's this guy, Conrad black. who was a white collar criminal ended up in sure. prison. And he mm -hmm. was talking about after he got out, how, you know, he, he, he referred to him as a Cuban gentleman, but he met, he met a Cuban guy who was in federal prison and he, He's like, we get three meals a day, clean sheets. Like, this place is amazing. You know, American <laughs> prison, like, you guys go to Walmart and stuff? Like, you know, but but Conrad Black, he's a white-collar criminal. He, he thought that, you know, federal prison was hell on earth. But, you know, a lot of people, when they see American prison conditions compared to, you know, the third world or wherever they're from, they 
don't believe that you can kind of sneak out and go to Walmart and do stuff like that. That just, when he drops little things like that in the book, I find them interesting, you know, yeah. about day-to-day prison life and how it, how it works. It paints a, an interesting picture of, of the inside yeah. of prison. Not that I ever particularly want to see it myself. <laughs> yeah. I, By I, the way, though, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, I'm perfectly happy to stick to accounts. The one thing that I found annoying with that narrative, again, if my Jason will correct me if my memory is wrong, isn't that where Billy Walters uh, says that his appearance on 60 Minutes, he said something on 60 Minutes that brought the ire of the investigators, of the and that's what yeah. yeah, he I said mean, that, that you have a you have a, you get a fair shake in the casino than you do. You know, in the stock market and the real criminals are on Wall Street, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, who knows? Maybe that really is what spurred this. I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's one of those things. Like, there's no way to verify one way or the other, but the, I do tend to agree with you the way that the law works. You know, there are some times where people are just vindictive for no reason, but mm-hmm. typically it's, it's not because you went on 60 Minutes and made a, a comment like that. Well, the thing is, look, I write about government corruption for a living, and I'm not uh, opposed to the idea that there are bad prosecutors, bad cops, all that sort of stuff. But if you read this book, this is a very unlucky individual, Billy Walters. How so? Yeah. Well, in the sense that, you know, every every prosecution, I mean, whether going back to the 80s, is not just wrong, but like outrageous and vindictive. I mean, uh, you know. It's yes, this genre yes. of book. You typically see that, you know, Jason says, well, this kind of book, well, if you read white collar organized crime books, th- you hear this a lot. I was just minding my own business and the federal prosecutor has yeah. a, a 400 page file on me. <laughs> yeah, it comes up pretty, pretty regularly. Yeah. yeah. Well, gentlemen, we've been going for about an hour here. Any final thoughts on the book as a whole? Uh, actually, you know what? Can that question? You talked at the beginning about how you were a little bit disappointed that it didn't go into some things that you wanted to do. Maybe now is a good time to ask both of you, what's the one thing you wish the book had talked about more? Sean, we'll start with you. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I like the fact uh, he doesn't do much, but he does get into the sociology of the betting. He talks about his research teams. Um in fact, he actually spends more time on that and the computer group and the algorithms. All that, and he talks a little bit about beards, which you know, just street term for people who are betting on his behalf, and runners. But there's so much more to that. If you really walk through, like for instance, it would have been great if he just walked through a single game that he was betting. Okay, you're betting an NFL game on a Sunday or a college football game on a Saturday. And you do what to get the line from this to this? How much money is placed where, when, how, with whom, how quickly, what are you monitoring, what do you want? That alone literally would be a chapter. Yeah. If you know what Billy Waters does for a living, that's an incredibly complicated thing. Now, again, maybe people are different than me as a reader and go, okay, that, you know, we don't really care about that. We want Phil Mickelson and we want, you know, screw Steve Wynn. But we have access to we most most people agree is if not the most consequential sports gambler in the last hundred years, he's one of them. And yet we finally have a crack at him telling us how he does this. And there's none of that. That that's what I was waiting for, because, like I say, all the gamblers I interviewed when I was doing game in the game, they were walking me through that. But they're nowhere near him. You know, I was fascinated by that. And yet they were simply pikers compared to somebody like Billy Walters. I, I agree. I think that would have been a very cool thing to sit down and see. But in my experience, which is significantly less than yours in interviewing professional gamblers, that is the thing that so many of them, it's like pulling teeth trying to get that information out of them. So I kind of get why it wasn't in there, but I fully agree with you. It would be phenomenal to just get a day in the life. This is the process of betting one of those games and wanting to move that market. Jason, well, what I mean, do you look? It was clearly meant for a mainstream audience, which is why he gave all those pages. Like Jason said earlier too. Okay. If you're betting an NFL game, these are the things to consider this. Yeah. I, I get that, mm-hmm. but you know, that's, that's not what makes him special. It makes him special in my opinion is what I just described. Mm-hmm. Jason, how about what you? What I thought was, was what I was looking, what I was looking for was actually in the book. 
what it, what what I was hoping he would include. Um, he talks a lot about Opportunity Village and his his various philanthropies and, and charities in in Nevada that that he's you know put a lot of money into. And I think at the end of the day, the reality is that gambling is just gambling. You know, being good at sports betting is just being good at sports betting, and being the best sports better in the world is still just being the best sports better in the world. Like it's not what makes Billy Walter is a special or an interesting person. What, what makes him interesting, you know, to me is like when he's talking about being down $300,000, $300,000 in debt and moving to Vegas and just kind of being like, okay, whatever, I'll deal with it. You know, like, like the personality needed to succeed, you know, being being 300 grand in debt to the bank and mind you this is 300 grand in the early 80s not 300 grand now which is yes slightly different but um you know i was, I was impressed and i i learned a lot and i think there are a lot of things that people and gamblers can take away that you know mm-hmm. billy walters wasn't necessarily particularly successful until he was almost 40 until he stopped drinking you know it doesn't success doesn't come to everybody right away but more importantly i think you know, he deserves to be known as the philanthropist that he is and, and for all the work he's done with stuff like Opportunity Village because, you know, at the end of the day, you can write the, the book about all the cool stuff he's done gambling and the time he won a million dollars on the Auburn-Michigan game. And, like, that's cool. Like, everyone likes to read stuff like that. But, like, the the actual impact he's made on the community in Nevada for the better is pretty impressive, you know. And, and for being just a gambler, um, or you know, uh, being just a gambler at one point, to the amount of money that he's donated to you know worthwhile causes is pretty impressive. Like whether or not you like him, or you know, there's a lot of people who don't particularly like him. You know, like uh, regardless of your opinion of him, you you at least have to respect the you know contributions that he's made you know positively, and he deserves to write about those and have them you know have that be a, a portion of his book it's it's really good stuff it's cool stuff and you know not not a lot of people um you know not a lot of gamblers are as philanthropic as he is so it's it's you know that that was what i was interested in reading about and he talked about it at great length so i think there's a lot of good things in this book for for people i i completely agree i think it's been a fantastic read so far and gentlemen it has been fantastic discussing it with you as well sean patrick griffin of course you can find him on twitter at spg author jason as always at spreadopedia and the book gambler secrets of a from a life at risk by billy walters you can pick it up today on amazon a website that actually did originally just sell books we came full circle on that one there, but gentlemen, thank you so much for joining you, me. By here the today. way, Sean, do you have do you have a uh, expanded revised edition plans? Anything for gaming the game? Anything coming I, out in the future for you? Yeah, I I actually do plan on uh, having an updated edition of Gaming the Game. Uh, nothing is ready to come out yet, but that's absolutely going to happen. Awesome. That's uh, that's pretty exciting. And there's uh, that's why I just wanted to ask you like uh, one question or a couple questions kind of with gaming the game stuff. But is there is there still research going on? Is there still stuff you're learning about Donnie in the case that that, you know, wasn't necessarily, you know, in the first edition that you're holding out, you know, for the, the next revised edition? Oh, yeah. Nothing. Uh, like, I'll put it this way. Nothing. Nothing that was written back in 2011 was wrong. Uh, we're just learning more and more fascinating things. So one of the things that happened when Gaming was published, a colleague of mine at Florida State University uh, took interest in it, and he had a team of graduate students who got interested, and they've been doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, we, I'm talking what we're we're more than ten years out now, so we've done uh, a lot of um, statistical analysis and uh, all sorts of things. So. There's been plenty of follow-up research, not just done by me, but people uh, at other universities, including people at Florida State, have looked at all sorts of things, um, whether it's betting statistics and things like that, not to mention all of the public activities that have gone on since 2011 that I've been chronicling and uh, I will have a lot to say about when the uh, updated edition comes out. Because it, it seems like every six months or so or once or twice a year, either some prestige publication or Netflix or somebody does a new documentary and, and they come out and tell the story. But every time they retell the story, it gets a little more 
convoluted and a little different. Mm -hmm. And then I see you on Twitter trying to correct everybody and saying, well, actually, I'm the authority on this. Here, here's what I think is going on and what actually happened. And of course, no one's listening to you. They're only mm -hmm. watching the Netflix documentary. I'm, yeah. I'm sitting there listening to you. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is exactly what I want to know. But it seems like we're, it's it's happening. You know, it still happens every six months or once a year. The story comes out and it gets told a little differently. And you know, yeah. I, I know it's frustrating as the authority to 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 be listening to people retell this and incorrectly. Well, it's even it's even worse because now it has bled into academic journals, where academic journals are citing the false narrative. <laughs> It's, it's mind-boggling. It, it, it uh, well, I just there's no hope. By the way, uh, Tommy, and for the audience out there, Jason's right. I do in, engage with people on Twitter, but I never say, "Excuse me, I am the authority." On <laughs> no, this. no, I, I don't mean you do that. But, but I mean, as the authority on this, you have to sit there and listen to people incorrectly. You know, on their soapbox, kind of, kind of say these things, and it's yeah. it's like, like it got to drive you nuts. Like, because because you know well, the best wrong. part is they're they're not just they they just don't have opinions. They have attitude. Yeah. They, they speak with conviction, and they're they have no idea what they're talking about. It's very frustrating. Well, so, I, I mean, mean I, I look forward to to reading a revised version and seeing what what else is out there. It's it's a fascinating story. Absolutely, yeah, would... Sean. Thank you again so much for the time today. We went. Just a bit over an hour here, but hey, it was a fantastic discussion. Thrilled to have you along for it. We'll have to bring you back when the new edition of Gaming the Game comes out. I'm looking forward to it already. One more time, Sean Patrick Griffin, author of Gaming the Game, at SPG Author on Twitter. Jason Weingarten at Spreadopedia on the Twitterverse as well. And of course, Billy Walter's book out now, Gambler's Secrets from a Life at Risk. Once again, go pick it up on Amazon, but that'll do it for us. Best of luck, everyone, with the NFL season kicking off, and we will see you next episode.